Hi everyone, and welcome to the Wordonomics podcast, brought to you by the UQES Diversity Team. I'm Francisco, and each week we bring in a new guest to talk about the issues that matter. UQES would like to acknowledge both Turbo and Jaguar nations, traditional owners and their custodianship of the lands on which this podcast is taking place today. We pay our respects to their ancestors and their descendants, who continue cultural and spiritual connections to country, and we recognize their valuable contributions to Australian and global society. Mm, interesting. Um, it sounds like you had a great three years there, um, and then you moved to Optiva, so that was your next step in your career. Um, how did you sort of move into that um, industry role? What what brought you to Optiva? Yep. So. What brought me to Optiva actually is kind of interesting. When you start applying for jobs, you notice that companies list the skills that they want. They say the ideal applicant will be strong at programming in Python, will know how to query SQL databases. They'll list a bunch of skills. Now, let's say that there's some probability for each of those skills, let's say there's some probability that somebody is actually familiar with those skills. It's very unlikely then that you can list or that a company can list a collection of skills. It's very unlikely that they can attract a candidate who knows all of those skills, who is good at all those skills. This is actually a, a real, quite a, quite a large problem with the way the companies advertise for applicants. It's better that companies look for not the skills, but the person. So, you know, the, a company should seek a person who um, demonstrates the ability to learn new things as evidenced by a solid academic record or um, participation in a, a project or by an honours thesis or something like that. For example, I think there are lots of people who can learn a programming language to a very high level, but a lot of them haven't learned that programming language. So why wouldn't a company look for those people, find the best learner out of them, and then give that person a month at the beginning of their job to teach themselves the programming language? So just that additional investment at the start from a company to an applicant, I think would be a better way for companies to employ people. And this is actually how I came across Optiva because the way that Optiva advertise, they're not really looking for specific skills. They're just looking for quantitative problem solvers. People who have a pretty good, you know, the ability to solve mathematical problems and not super complicated ones either, but just simple problems to do with probability, to do with rolling dice, uh, that sort of thing. So I was sort of taken aback. I was like, oh, that's me. I'm a mathematical problem solver. Oh, and thank goodness I don't need to know anything about, you know, convolutional neural networks or anything like that. I can just, maybe I can just walk into this one. And um, yeah, I, that, that was basically how I came across Optiva. It was the job that was listed that was actually asking for me and not a bunch of things that I could teach myself over the course of you know a few months mm. yeah no I heard a similar story um a friend who had a commerce degree with honors 
and um, sat down on their first day at an economic consulting firm. And to the left of them was a student with an art history degree, but who had done so, so well in it because obviously had the passion and the ability to learn. And then to their right was a student with an engineering degree. And they all ended up in the same place doing the same job because they'd advertised for people who are willing to learn and, you know, can write and can do all those sorts of key skills. Um, and from then they progressed and all ended up staying in that pathway for a long time. So it seems like Optiva um, hires in the same sort of way. Yeah, absolutely. We want people who, you know, we don't want to hire a set of skills. We want to hire uh, a changing, growing person who can learn these things and more. Mm. And so now you're um, the head of academic partnerships at Optiva. Would you mind sort of explaining Optiva as a company, what Optiva does, and then what your role now encompasses at Optiva? Yep, absolutely. So the best way, I think, to explain what Optiva does is first to just, like, consider, well, let's let's talk about vegetables. So um, there are farms out there that grow vegetables and want to sell those vegetables. There are people out there, like you and me, who would like to buy those vegetables. And there's a function that allows this transaction to happen. So there's a physical supermarket. We go to the supermarket. The farmers drop off the vegetables at the supermarket. And then the supermarket is like this body that will buy the vegetables from the farmers and then sell them to us in the store. Optiva is sort of like this supermarket, but for financial instruments. So we connect up the buyers and sellers on millions of financial instruments in the world. So let's just think about, you know, what, what do financial instruments look like? Well, there's stocks and there's currencies. There's these things called options, which uh, we spend a lot of time trading at Optiva. So I was an options trader for five years. That was my focus as well. But imagine, okay, so let's say that you want to buy a stock or an option or some sort of financial instrument. Uh, you may, you, you, know, you have your own reasons for doing this. Uh, anyone with a sort of a super account or a super fund will own some stocks through their, their super. So what happens? Well, you go to this thing called the exchange and the exchange is where things are traded. It's like the physical supermarket, but without the business there, if you like. So you rock up at the exchange and you're like, yep, I want to buy some, I want to buy some stocks. I want to, I want to invest. Uh, the person selling those stocks also arrives at the exchange. So you're both there. Determining the price is very tricky. If you're the only buyer and there's a seller with lots to sell, then it's quite hard to determine the fair price. You might say, oh, where are all the other buyers? Why am I the only buyer? Is there something I don't know? And you might expect the price to come lower because of all this supply. On the other hand, it might be crazy at this, at this supermarket, this exchange. There might be all these people who want to buy. And then everyone's shouting over, trying to shout over the top of each other. I'll buy a dollar. No, I'll buy it a dollar fifty. No, I want those potatoes. You know, it might just, uh, the price might escalate. Without the actual supermarket business controlling prices, there is, it's a bit of, bit of chaos, right? You don't want to negotiate directly with the farmer and they don't want to negotiate directly with you. It makes sense that somebody out there is coming up with the pricing. 
and they had to do it pretty fairly in the you know in the supermarket world you'd hope anyway right like if they they try and sell you um bananas for a thousand dollars a kilo no one's going to buy the banana so they have to set the price where it's you know they have to set the price at the right level so optiva are doing this for financial instruments you want to buy stocks someone else wants to sell stocks say so what optiva is doing is we are buying from one person selling to another we're facilitating that interaction we're making sure that it happens at the fair price and we're also making sure that it happens quickly and directly. So rather than, you know, having these aberrations in supply and demand where the price of the stock or the thing goes up or down really quickly, we stabilize it by making sure we, we, we basically absorb supply and demand. So when we see that there's a, you know, a large seller, um, you know, that's come to the exchange that wants to, that has a, you know, that wants to sell all of these stocks or options, we will make sure that we buy from that person and distribute to all of the buyers. We do that over time. We have we have ways of doing this so that it doesn't, so that we keep the price fair, the price doesn't move too much because volatile markets make people pretty, you know, a bit uneasy. nervy. <laughs> yeah, uneasy. Yep, absolutely. Um, so we uh, we stabilise prices while we, we, we smooth and ease transactions. We make them happen quickly we do this in an official capacity as well. So Optiva are official market makers. That's the term. We're official market makers for financial exchanges across the world. So that is what Optiva does. We make the market efficient by ensuring that people can buy when they want and people can sell when they want. Usually what will happen is, you know, first of all, the first question that comes to mind is how is this profitable? Well, we will buy on average for slightly lower than we will sell. So we might be, you know, there might be this thing out there worth a dollar. We might be buying it for 99 cents and selling it for a dollar and one cent. So we make two cents for every buy slash sell that we do together. And over time, by transacting with a lot of different parties, we will generate profits for the company in that way. And that's the the payment we get for providing that liquidity, providing that service to the market. Mm. My role now as head of academic partnerships, well, it's not trading. It's a change from trading. So when I was at Optiva, when I was trading at Optiva for five years, it was all about facilitating, um, driving the, the trading that we do, so the buying and selling. So I would have like a collection of, options or financial instruments that I would be making prices for. So I'd always be showing buy and sell prices for a range of instruments. I'll buy it for this, I'll sell it for that. I'll buy it for this, I'll sell it for that. And this was all this is all done through the use of, you know, algorithms, software, hardware. Um, Optiva are very, or trading companies in general, stand on the shoulders of giants, if you like. You know, there's a lot of hardware and software that goes into this stuff. In that trading role, I was overseeing a collection of instruments and showing buy and sell prices for each of those instruments so that people could just walk in, well, you know, metaphorically walk in and do the trades they wanted to do straight away. And that involved a lot of mathematics. So we use mathematics to price options. We use mathematics to price financial instruments, things like statistics, probability, uh, but also like the ability to, to process large amounts of data. 
things like machine learning. There's, there are many ways to price an option. There are simple ways or complex ways. Basically with market, with market making, it's all about being there, being in the market for people to transact. with. Mm -hmm. My current role as head of academic partnerships is more about getting out to universities and talking to students about the careers that await them at Optiva, at other trading companies and at industry in general. Lovely. So when you were working as a trader, you spent five years doing that. Did you enjoy that? And what was the um, lifestyle like? Trading has a reputation for being pretty full on. Um, was that your experience? And what what was a day in the life like? And what was your main area of um, interest when you were trading? So yeah, trading jobs are in general pretty grueling. I think they can be really challenging. And that's a good thing, ultimately. It was a career where I had a lot of growth, where I was always learning new stuff. If you work a job where every day is a good day, you're probably not learning much. Maybe not, maybe good is not the word, but easy. If every day is easy, you're probably not being pushed too much. And without challenge, it's quite hard to grow. So in trading and at Optiva, there were challenging days, days where there were new problems that we were faced with. Oh, how are we going to price this? Or, oh, wow, look at um, this, this financial instrument. This has been uh, sold off to a very high level. We've bought a lot of it. What do we think? Do we want to buy more of it? Do we think that the market knows something we don't know? There's always there's always questions to, to answer. My work-life balance was generally pretty good. The nice thing about working for a market maker like Optiva is you really only need to be there for market hours. And markets are open for about sort of six hours a day. I traded on the Hong Kong exchange and then on the Osaka stock exchange in Japan. So my hours were, yeah, there was maybe about six hours of trading each day. There was, I was never there on a weekend or anything like that. I always hear horror stories from like, um, you know, junior investment bankers and that sort of thing and consultants that they're, uh, that, you know, they're spending their weekends and, you know, they're, they're pulling all nighters, that sort of thing. Uh, it was very, I wouldn't say it was a nine to five job. It was probably a nine to six job on average. So it was pretty, like in terms of hours, it was, it was all pretty reasonable. And I, so I still had like a very good work-life balance. It was, by all you know, by all measures, intense. You know, you're a market maker, so you it's live. You're plugged into the market. You're showing buy prices. You're, you're showing sell prices. You're trading. You know, you're doing tens of thousands of trades a day. So yeah. there's lots of trading, and you're just looking at a trade list, going, okay, we buy some of that, we sell some of that, we sell some of that, we buy some of that. Okay, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Oh, that doesn't make sense. What what's going on? You know, and you and then you're sort of looking into it. So while the market is open, it can be pretty, um, yeah pretty exciting I think yeah sounds pretty full noise so if our listeners are interested in working for Optiva how is the hiring process and what advice would you have for them so the hiring process well to kick it off is probably pretty standard you go and submit an application on the Optiva website for a role so we have internships and we also have grad positions you can choose, there are, there are trading positions, there are risk manager positions, there are research positions, there are software positions, hardware positions, 
there are plenty of jobs. The nice thing about Optiva is growth is a focus. We're, we're never just looking for, you know, two grads. We will just take the grads that can pass our tests that do well in the interview. So there's always room, which is nice. Um, people take some comfort in that. So you go online and you apply. Now, applications for internships and grad positions sort of officially closed maybe a couple of days ago, but I think there's a continuous expression of interest on the site. So really, I believe that if you apply at any time of the year through the expression of interest, uh, you'll be able to, to do the tests, have interviews. and that's The interview process itself is actually a little bit more streamlined than it used to be before the pandemic. Uh, so I remember when I applied, it just felt like I was going into that office, um, you know, every week for a few weeks. It was pretty, pretty busy. But these days it starts with a sort of SHL test, which is, I don't know, I've never done that test, but I imagine it's like, you know, what comes next in the sequence, you know, here are a, bu here are a bunch of pictures, you know, what does the next picture look like? Uh, I think there's that sort of test that's followed by, a, a, you know, our quant challenge or our quant test so that's something that i had you know i wrote most of that test and there you know probability questions brain teases logic that sort of thing so trying to identify who the strong mathematical problem solvers are now don't think oh geez i've got to be i've got to have a maths major because that's just not the case like i mentioned simple ideas are really powerful at Optiva and in industry, being really good at the, the basics. So probability is pretty key. You've got to know a little bit about probability, expected values, um, and that sort of thing is going to be useful for the interview, for the, for the selection process. So once you've done like these two online tests, the SHL test and the quant test, then we go to like a quick sort of phone interview just making sure that you're a real person and not Microsoft Sam or anything like that. Uh, and then after that, basically there's a day of interviews. And by a day of interviews, it's really like two and a half hours worth of interviews. There's a behavioral interview and a technical interview. And then you also get the opportunity to, you know, chat to some other people at Optiva and they'll tell you a bit about the company, a bit what the job is like and that sort of thing. Um, so we sort of condense that sort of into a day. So once you've done like the, online tests, a phone interview, it's pretty much in person. Well, this year it's been held over Zoom. Maybe next year we'll get back to in person. But that's um, pretty much it. So that's uh, the selection process for the trading roles and the research roles um, sort of boiled down. There are like the different jobs sometimes have like additional tests. So there might be like a programming test or if you're going for a research role. Um, but in short, like I mentioned before, Optiva are trying to hire the person. So like if they don't know, if they never heard of, you know, what an option is, that's fine. I, when I started, I had no idea what an option was, but I knew what, you know, probability meant. And I, yeah, I, I still know what it means. And, and I, I knew how to calculate an expected value as well. So, you know, if you roll a, if you roll a dice, um, five times and sum up the faces that appear what is the expected value of that sum so just simple probability problems like that i had a good a good ability to to do lovely um so just to sort of wrap up our conversation 
Is there anything that you wish you knew before starting work, before moving into the more corporate world from um, academia? Yes, there, yeah, many, many, many things. But what I've noticed in industry, the ruling themes are statistics and programming and how they work together. So statistics and programming are like the two key things for employability in today's age, in my opinion. So I wish, first of all, I'm not that great at stats. I wish I was better at stats, but I got to learn on the job a bit, which was really, really nice. Programming, I was okay at. And then I also, that's also something I learned on the job. It's also something that is incredibly useful. And you, you, you'll find when people encourage you towards careers, and I, and I look back when I was in year 12 and my teacher said, hey, go be a mining engineer or an actuary or a, or a quant or, a, you know, now it's a data scientist and a, a trader. First of all, they're telling you to be a working mathematician, but the key, you know, the key um, fields that are being, um, that are recurring there, you know, is probability, that's one of them, and now programming. So the hot jobs are really just the, the it's really just being a mathematician, a statistician, a programmer you know, having these technical skills. And the beauty of it is you can be, if you know stats in programming, you can be a trader for a few years and you can go and be like a biologist for a few years or an economist for a few years. You, that mathematical ability is so applicable and transferable. You can, you know, you become a very, you have a very portable career. You can, you can change from one thing to another. You can move as the, you know, the job market moves. So right now, everybody is, um, everybody's doing data science and machine learning. Like it's huge, it's massive, and it's amazing. There are two types of people in data science. There are those that are just very good at the maths and the stats and the programming, and now they're applying it to data science. They're in a very good position. But there are also people who are just doing, you know, the data science course offered by um, Uncle John's Back Alley University. And they don't have the mathematical basis to understand to a high level what they're doing. So there are people who chase the hot area, but aren't, well, aren't positioned to do that well. And then there are people who know the underlying basic ideas, statistics, mathematics, and they can move from one area to another as you know the, the, the interest and the demand moves. Yeah, I think that's really great advice and every hot area of employment that comes up, it does seem to cover those areas. So that's really interesting. More of a personal note, are there any books that or specific pieces of reading that you'd um, recommend to our listeners that might help them with their sort of further learning in, in your um, area of expertise? Yep, I love Great Expectations, but not that useful for for <laughs> trading. But a, a you know good one for you know, humanity and all that. There is one book that I love that I recommend to all aspiring traders slash mathematical thinkers, and that book is Fifty Challenging Problems in Probability. is by uh, Frederick Mostella. It is well, 
it is what it is. It's 50 challenging problems in probability. Okay, it's not even that. It's like 56 problems or something, but the book's called 50 Challenging Problems. You get six for free or something like that. So that is a great way to brush up or learn ideas in probability. It just it gives you a problem. Maybe it's about rolling dice or playing a game of blackjack or something like that, and you try and solve the problem. You mess around with it. You know, I, I tried to do this. Some of them I solved, some I didn't. The ones I didn't and the ones I did, I would look at the solution. And the solution would um, present some new idea or, or go over some technique I hadn't seen in a while or a technique that I'd learned at uni but never seen applied. So it's a really good book um, in terms of training you to become a strong probabilistic thinker. And probability in industry and the real world is everything. I mean, data science is, you know, a hot, incredible field, but like all the data we get is generated by probabilistic processes. Like if you're looking at, you know, I don't know, Netflix subscribers or something like that, that there's an underlying probability model to that. You know, people are deciding whether to keep the subscriptions or cancel them. So you can be like, oh, well, you know, let's assign a probability to, um, let's say that there's some probability that they're going to cancel the subscription and you can model it, you know, how that changes over time, if the cost goes up or down, but all the data that we have that we work with, a lot of it is just generated by probabilities. So understanding probabilities lets you understand the data. It lets you go out there and have a, a working model of, of the world. So I think it's incredibly powerful. There are obviously advanced courses you can do in probability, but simple ideas rule. And from the book, 50 Challenging Problems and Probability, you will get well acquainted with those simple ideas. Lovely. I'll be heading out to Dimmicks tomorrow to add that to my library. Thank you so much, Adrian. This has been a really interesting conversation and I hope all of our listeners have gained something from it. If you're listening, we look forward to seeing you next week for our next episode. Um, and thanks so much, Adrian. Thanks, Eleanor. Thanks for having me.